You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku. Today is December 9, 2021. And on today's episode, I'm going to recap GameStop's third quarter's earnings report. Then I'll briefly talk about some of Ethereum's smart contracts and what goes on behind them. And then I'm going to be showing you how I'm altering my sports gambling segment. Because I'll be focusing on the NFL for this upcoming weekend. And then after I give you my NFL picks, I'll be wrapping up the episode with a teaching moment on what backtesting is. And then I'll give you an example of backtesting that I found off of Reddit. And if you're more curious about it, a website that you can use if you want to start backtesting yourself. Hope you enjoy the episode. Financial disclaimer. Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back apes and retailers that think alike. For the investing segment today, I'll give a quick recaps for the apes portfolio. Then I'll talk about GameStop's third quarter's earnings report. And then my plan is to wrap it up with some new findings that I got off of Ethereum smart contracts. So let me start off with a quick recap of the apes portfolio. So for the security segment, which is the stocks and options, everything's roughly around the same amount. So the total there is $496.50 as of Wednesday's close. Now the crypto department was able to bounce back from what it originally fell to. It's still in the red for me overall, but it was able to bounce back to about $349.25. And then for the gambling segment, I took a break from the last episode, so the total remains at $309.75. This puts the total portfolio valuation at $1,155.50, which is about a 5% gain. So by having the cryptos climb back from that fall, at least it was able to take me out of the negative. And since I'm long with this portfolio, I'm not too worried about these short-term percentages. But I do like to document it just for the podcast's sake. So now let me dive into GameStop's third quarter's earnings report. First, I'll get into some of the things they said, as opposed to the numbers. So some of the things that GameStop said in their third quarter's earnings report, which can be found on GameStop's website under the Investor Relations, or another online resource like Yahoo Finance if you just wanted to get into some numbers, And from looking at GameStop's third quarter's earnings report, I'll just recap some of the highlights that stood out to me. So one of the important things the directors wanted to touch on is that GameStop's going to be evolving from a video game retailer to a tech company that connects customers with games, entertainment, and a wide assortment of products. These directors also want the shareholders to know that they're expanding their products and markets in PC gaming, consumer electronics, collectibles, toys, and get this, other natural extensions of our business. So what's their business? Well, they're trying to transform into an e-commerce tech company. But not only that, they sell toys. This is kind of sounding like a tech version of Amazon to me. 
that also caters to kids. Everyone, if you think about it. But let's move on from the long-term scope these directors gave us. Because during these short-term conditions, the directors also let us know that they expected to have an increase in labor costs, consulting costs, and all these administrative costs. Because they've been hiring like crazy and firing like crazy as well, trying to transition to this new tech and e-commerce company. So as expected, expenses are going to be high. But are you ready for the juiciest part that they mentioned in this third quarter's earnings report? They mentioned computer share. You remember that stock I was telling you about? That you can buy that's foreign because it's GameStop's transfer agent? Well, the directors must have thought it was very important information to let us shareholders know that as of the end of October of this year, 5.2 million shares were locked up in computer share. So I guess GameStop's board thought it was necessary to mention to all of us shareholders that at least 5.2 million shares as of the end of October, right? So we still have a month and one week of unaccounted data for. So just the 5.2 million shares is locked up in computer share. Now I'll come back down to this number and why it's important a little bit later towards the end of the recap for this report. But one thing that I find really important already that computer share is being mentioned in this third quarter's earning report is that this isn't being mentioned in Reddit or Twitter, guys. This is on GameStop's third quarter's earnings report. They haven't mentioned this in any other earnings report this year. So why now are they deciding to let us know that 5.2 million shares are locked into computer share? Because there's a high interest, ladies and gentlemen. So now before I explain the significance of the 5.2 million shares locked up, let me talk about some of the numbers that are important that also came off of this report. For example, it states that locations in the Boston and Seattle areas have been bought and over 200 hires have been made for senior positions in the tech field. So this means that GameStop has been setting up these little quarters in Boston and Seattle and they're going to be these e-commerce giants in those two locations. Not only that, but now Nevada is finally operational for delivery services. So this only speeds the ability that they're able to deliver goods at. Now all those operational expenses earlier this year are starting to make sense because GameStop was working on Nevada's building earlier this year. And another positive note you can take off of GameStop is that compared to a year ago, their net sales rose 29%. So this clearly shows that there's an interest in GameStop if you're projecting it off of revenues, which as soon as Wall Street starts valuing GameStop as a growth company and not this cyclical one, revenue is what's going to be its main metric measure. And when people start buying TVs and game consoles, let me tell you how that revenue number is just going to spike up and up and up. You think a cost of chips during this chip shortage is huge? Imagine what the cost of a PC is going to be off of GameStop. And they're going to find a way to make it convenient. And they're going to have such a friendly staff and an amazing awards membership plan that people are going to love shopping off of GameStop just as much as people used to love shopping off of Amazon. Now I will get into one number that seems to be a con. And this is the perfect number that the shorts are going to be pointing at for the next three months until the next quarter's earnings report. Because for the next three months, the shorts get to yell, Oh, but look, their earnings per share was negative $1.39. We expected negative 29 cents. They nearly had an extra dollar above it. Well, guess what? They also spent a shit ton in operational costs. And there's a supply chain issue with COVID. So they double stacked on inventory just to be stacked up for the holiday. So I wonder what's going to happen during the fourth quarter's earnings call. There's going to be a shit ton of revenue because of all this inventory on hand. Because I think a lot of people are going to want PS5s 
consoles, games, toys, and anything, and GameStop's gonna have it on supply. And they have everything en route and prepared to deliver it fast and convenient to you before Christmas. So yeah, the shorts will be able to yell for another three months how this negative earnings per share is well over a dollar. But if you want to look at this long term, GameStop has $1.4 billion worth in cash and they essentially have no debt. They have about a $350 million loan with very low interest. I mean, if they wanted to, they could pay off that loan right now and they'd have a billion dollars worth of cash. And they're transitioning to become an e-commerce tech giant? You're telling me this is a dying company that's worth $10? You can get off the couch right now and go work at McDonald's because that's where you're going to be if you keep shorting this stock. And it is management's belief that they're going to turn into a growth company because they said that they believe growing revenue will help grow the business to scale. Well, if your primary focus is on growing revenue, this means you're looking to become a growth company. And GameStop in terms of Wall Street is viewed as a cyclical, dying brick and mortar company. Well, good luck explaining this one in two years. And now before I move on to smart contracts, I want to get back and touch upon that 5.2 million and why I think it's very important. There's a little bird out there that said something about a MOAS. And what that means is just a little sliver, a small sand pinch amount of what happened at the end of January with GameStop. When it went from $20 to over $480. Well, when the MOAS occurs, this thing has a chance to go from $100 or $200 to anything over $100,000. And if you think that's ridiculous... Well, look at Berkshire Hathaway, because that thing is valued at anything over 250 k a pop. So there's no price that's too high for any stock at any given moment. But without getting too much into that, let me talk about this 5.2 million and what the significance is. Because like I've stated in earlier episodes, GameStop has a very low amount of shares outstanding. It has about 76.5 million shares, actually. So this means there's only about 76.5 million shares in the company. So 5.2 million is already locked up by retail in computer share. All right, this doesn't mean anyone that has any shares on their brokers in computer share alone at the end of October of this year. Well, if I look at some other big brain stats, it shows that the amount of shares held by insiders, at least from the last six months, is about 13.6 million. And if you wanted to dive down even deeper, you could look at how many shares Ryan Cohen has because he owns about 13% of GameStop shares. And if you're assuming he hasn't sold a single one, that's about 9.9 million shares. Now, why am I giving you all of these numbers? Because if you add up all of those shares, that's 32.6 million shares. That's 37.4% of the shares of GameStop already. And that's just the insiders, Ryan Cohen, and a bunch of apes who decided to directly register their shares like me. I have 51 moon tickets in that sucker. So 51 of those 5.2 million shares are mine. But it doesn't stop there. Because during this earnings call, apes were diligent. And they found out that this DRS bot, which is a bot that has been automatically tracking DRS shares on Superstonk and forums for people that are posting. Well, people found out that the bot number doubled from the end of October to today. So that means at the end of October, the bot number had about 500,000 shares registered. And as of today, it's somewhere about a million. So if we do the math and we assume that apes were directly registering shares at a linear pace, then this would mean another 5 million shares were directly registered into computer share within that month and extra week of unaccounted data. Now, this is a heavy assumption, but let me just say, if that's the case, that would mean that almost half of GameStop is already locked up, which means it can't be sold or at least it can't be sold easily. 
But what's even more important is it means these shares can't be borrowed. So now if there's a lot of short interest out there, there's a lot less shares out in the market to actually be bought. So the next time there's a high volume day, this thing is going to start spiking upwards because there's less shares in the pool to even be playing with. And the more shares that get directly registered and bought up, well, the less of a pool all of these shorts have to be using. And I pray for them on the day that they have to all cover at once. Because we're going to be seeing the exact same thing that happened at the end of January, except for this time, people had a whole year to prepare for it. So that's the recap that I got from GameStop's third quarter's earnings report. Now the next thing I wanted to dive into is what Ethereum smart contracts are into. Because I've been doing a lot more reading and researching into the crypto markets over the last two weeks. And although I'm nowhere near an expert yet in this field, I was at least able to understand smart contracts enough to do my best and explain them here. So for starters, a smart contract is everything like a real contract is, except for it's digital. So that's the only difference between a smart contract and a real one, is that the smart one is a digital contract. And more precisely, this digital contract is actually a tiny computer program that is stored inside of a blockchain. So now you're starting to see the important uses of these blockchains. They store contracts. So why is it important to have contracts being stored on a blockchain as opposed to just having a third party handle all of this? Well, because then you're relying on that third party. And if anything were to happen to that third party, well then you gotta find another one. So there's this human element involved. And even though there's a human element involved on these blockchains, it's a little bit different because it's decentralized and it's shown transparently to the open public. So let me explain in context how these smart contracts can be used. Normally you would have a middleman handle these contracts and then they would be the ones to disperse the funds between the two parties. So let's use a construction project as an example. There's a construction project team and then there's an investor group. The investor group is giving their money to this construction team so that they can build this project. But there's a middleman involved in all of this stuff. There's a middleman that was involved in creating a contract because lawyers had to be present. There's a middleman controlling all the money movement and inflows between the two parties. So what I'm trying to get at is there's three people involved in these transactions, but only two of them are even doing the work. One group is risking the capital and the other is risking their labor while the other is just collecting pennies on microtransactions, or as I like to see it, being there for moral support. So now let's take these blockchains with smart contracts. What do they do? Well, they remove this middleman. So now this investor group can work directly with this construction management team. And what they can do is create a smart contract on these blockchains, and the investor group can pay the construction group, and as they're doing their job, funds can be released to them because of the code that's written on these smart contracts. So now you have two total people in this process and one intermediary that's completely unbiased because it's not controlled by a human element. Instead, it's controlled by a decentralized human element that is put on a public ledger. And there's an incentive to solve these blockchains and at least take importance in them because of the rewards that these miners get. So everyone using this system is winning in this situation. Except for that third party that used to make money off of microtransactions. Man, it must suck if your business used to rely on making money off of fractions of pennies because nowadays these blockchains are about to take you over. And another thing that's amazing about these smart contracts is they're immutable. Now, I don't really know what that word means, so I looked it up for you. And what immutable means is that once these smart contracts are created, it can never be changed again. 
so this means that your smart contract cannot be tampered with or altered behind the scenes. Have we heard that one before? You know, the rules changing all of a sudden? Yeah, so that shit can't ever happen again, according to smart contracts. That also means that the code you create in your smart contract states exactly what you want, because once you upload it, it's too late. And if you had something else in mind with that contract, well, you're gonna have to start over and create a new one. Aside from being this clever word immutable, these smart contracts are also distributed, which is what a blockchain is. It's a decentralized distributed ledger. So because of this distribution, this means that your contract is checked by everyone on a network. So one person can't possibly tamper with these contracts. This means one person can't log into your contract and make it seem like the task is complete, which would then activate the funds to transfer over. You see, when you set up a smart contract, you can set up these conditions in your code so that if conditions aren't met, the money is bounced back to the investors. And if the conditions are met, it goes forward just as a regular payment. Do you see how this is very convenient? Because now you're not relying on a middleman to get all this shit done. Imagine if your middleman is <clears throat> the government and you have to wait and rely on them to finally give you payment. We've seen what happens with stimulus payments. They're six months late on some people. If they just use this blockchain ledger shit and stop being so old-fashioned and get their heads out of their asses half the time, then they would have been able to give the people the money right away because they could have created a smart contract to quickly transfer funds over based on certain criteria. But no, all we kids do is play video games and that's all we know. This younger generation's in their phones. Because some examples these higher powers like banks, insurance companies, and the postal service even can use these smart contracts for are simple stuff like issuing loans, offering automatic payments, even processing long and monotonous claims, and then the postal service could implement delivery payments on blockchain. Things could get done a lot faster and you wouldn't have to wait on all these intermediaries. But I think it's because you've got a lot of people that are unwilling to change. And it's not anyone that's younger. So now essentially all you know a smart contract is, is just a regular contract that's digitalized. And it's a computerized program that's put on a blockchain. So that the whole public who's on this blockchain server can solve these contracts and make sure that they don't get tampered with. And it's a system in place of these blockchains and cryptos that allow for these smart contracts to exist. Which now removes the need of this middleman, which their whole agenda is to profit on the fractions of these pennies that they deliver to you. Remember, do you want to be a group of three with two people working, or do you want to be a group of two with two people working? Ask yourself what's more efficient. And there are many crypto projects out there that support these smart contracts, but one of the most known ones is Ethereum, because Ethereum was designed and supported to run smart contracts. So now I hope you're starting to see the value of Ethereum, and where it derives its utility from. Although it's considered a crypto coin, it's more than a coin, because now it has a utility since you can upload code on it. Bitcoin also is able to support smart contracts. It's just limited in comparison to Ethereum and what it offers. So now if you wanted to write a smart contract, what would you have to do? Well, you would need to write all of your code on a software known as Solidity. Now Solidity is a software that is closely resembled to JavaScript. And it's off of this program that you can write your code for your smart contract. Now what people typically do is they write their code on Solidity and they can include anything they need for the job or service that's included. For example, banks can issue loans on these smart contracts. They can take their paper contracts, the physical copies, 
and just transfer that into code language on a smart contract. And then they would digitally make these loan offers. So this means that as soon as contingencies are hit, the money would transfer directly over to the bank immediately. There wouldn't be this two-day settlement period that typically happens. Everything is a lot faster this way, and it's more reliable. Now I tried doing more research on Solidity, but I'm no expert in computer science. So the only thing I got for you is that Solidity was created in 2014, which kind of coincides around the same time that Ethereum was launched. So a lot of these developments were created during the 2013 to 2017 period. So in recap, for smart contracts, you can use a platform like Ethereum or any other blockchain that supports them to ensure that you and another party don't have to rely on a middleman. And if you weren't sure how to create a smart contract, you could hire someone to create a coded language for you in a Solidity program. What they would then do before uploading the smart contract to the blockchain is make sure that everything runs smoothly. And they will run this on some testing servers. After running everything on a testing server, they would upload your contract on the blockchain. To do this, you physically have to buy the actual crypto token. So when you're uploading a contract on Ethereum, people are actually paying for Ethereum. And there's something called gas fees. And what a gas fee is, is essentially buying more Ethereum. So if you're looking at it from a supply and demand perspective, every time someone wants to put a contract on Ethereum, the demand is going to go up because you're forced to buy Ethereum to even upload this smart contract. In return though, you get all of the benefits for not having to rely on a middleman, faster transactions, reliability, transparency, and the ability to get back everything if the service isn't met. These contracts that are stored on blockchains is creating a demand and a utility use for the coins that are providing these contracts. So yes, right now Ethereum is a big one, but if you can find another platform that you can upload smart contracts on, eventually in the long run, you might become profitable on that coin if you get in early enough. Now I'm not saying those are the kinds of projects and only projects you should be looking into, but I'm hoping you have a little bit of a better understanding about smart contracts and the uses that they provide in the crypto world. Because now you have the ability to create an angel investor group out of anyone. Because all you really need is a true community to believe in your project and enough help, commitment, and drive in your development team. And you can push any coins project to a reality that actually affects and benefits this crypto market. That's how most of these shit coins start, as a dream. And then eventually, they can become something bigger. You think Ethereum started off so high and glamorous? No, this thing used to be below $5. So there was definitely not as much belief in this. But over time, as people started uploading smart contracts onto Ethereum's base, it gained popularity, demand, and now it is what it is today. So now I'm hoping you learned a little bit more about what a smart contract is and the purpose it serves in the crypto community. So for today's investing segment, I recap my Apes portfolio, gave you a quick rundown on GameStop's third quarter's earnings report, and then let you know what I learned about smart contracts and how it's mostly tied to Ethereum and other blockchains out there. Before I move on, I wanted to let you know about the one play I'm going to be making soon. Remember that Cortezyme option I had? It would be really smart of me to sell it off tomorrow because next week the option is going to expire on Friday. Now instead of selling it off tomorrow, I'm going to do one last Hail Mary attempt. I'm going to pray that on Monday, for whatever dumb reason, the stock just decides to jump up. So what I'm going to do with my Cortezyme option, which right now is valued at about 10 cents a share, is I'm going to sell it the first thing on Monday morning. So next week, Monday morning, when the market opens, which for me is going to be 6.30 a.m., between 6.30 a.m. and 7 a.m., 
I'm going to look at the price of Cortezyme and I'm going to sell off this option. Whatever the price is, I'm going to sell it at the market price. So those were some final words I wanted to say before I let you go. And until next time, ape out. Hello my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to the sports gambling segment. I wanted to give you a rundown on my plan moving forward with this segment. Because the last episode, I didn't give out the picks how I normally do. And the reason is, because I realized I was scrambling sports to sports, and I felt like I was just giving out picks without really making any analysis on it. So in order to give you some kind of analysis on these games, and not just sound mundane by giving out picks after picks like I'm reading a shampoo bottle, I decided to cut down the amount of sports I'm going to bet on. So for this upcoming weekend, I'll only be betting on the NFL. So it's going to make it easier to at least talk about it. For the upcoming weeks, I'll be creating a sports journal so I can start covering more of the sports. But for now what's more important is the NFL, because we're coming down the playoff stretch. And I had a little bit of fun with the NFL playoff machine picture, and I found out that there's a real chance that three teams from the NFC Beast, or NFC East if you want to call it, can represent in the playoffs. Now I ran all these dumb projections, and this is all assuming that the Eagles are able to pick up their shit and start winning, but the Washington football team, the Eagles, and the Cowboys all have a chance to make it into the playoffs this year, and I'm going to be rooting for that so hard. As a matter of fact, I'll be basing my upcoming week picks on them. So in order for this to happen, I essentially would need the San Francisco 49ers, Atlanta Falcons, New Orleans Saints, and Minnesota Vikings to start losing games. We would need the Washington football team and the Eagles to finish with better records above them. The Washington football team has a lot more tiebreakers over them, so for the Eagles, it'd be better if they were up a game rather than tied because that would probably knock them out of the playoff picture. So I'm not going to be breaking down the playoff machine I have because it's basically set up for the next 5 weeks, and a lot can happen this next 5 weeks. I just wanted to let you know what I'll be rooting for in this upcoming month. So now that you know I'm rooting for the NFC Beast to represent in the NFL playoffs this year, Let me dive into the week 14 slate, which is going to be starting today when the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to be visiting the Minnesota Vikings. So this is going to be the second game the Steelers are coming off of, knowing that this is Ben Roethlisberger's last year. And I think Ben had the perfect timing in his announcement for stating that he's going to be retiring. Because now the Steelers have something to play for. A goodbye Ben tour. And not only that, they're going to be playing the Minnesota Vikings to try and get their playoff push started. And I think the Steelers can fully go into Minnesota and just whoop them. Now the Minnesota Vikings do have a lot of offensive firepower, but I think that defense is torn up. And I also don't think the offensive line is going to be able to protect Kirk Cousins, especially with TJ Watt and the mean defense the Steelers have. Overall, I think if the Steelers are able to protect Big Ben in the pocket, they're going to be able to easily win this game. Because the Steelers have something more to fight for. And not only that, The Vikings are just coming off a loss to the Lions. They gave the Lions their first win. I mean, even the Steelers were able to do better. They tied. But in an all-serious note, I think this game is going to be decided on the defensive end, which is why I would pick the Steelers for this game. Now let's fast forward to Sunday, because we only get to see one game on Thursday night. So on Sunday, we have a total of 12 games. One of the first games is going to be the Ravens at the Browns. Now this is a revenge game for the Browns because they're coming off their bye and right before the bye, if you remember, they played the Ravens and they lost. So I think with Baker Mayfield coming off of plenty rest 
and the Browns wanting to get their revenge, they're going to come out firing. And they're at home, so they've got the home crowd to support them. Another thing that makes this hard is that the Ravens lost Marlon Humphreys. And if the Browns can make Lamar throw, they might just be able to win this game. Because the Ravens are a run-first team. And if they get shut down in the run by the Browns, which isn't completely unheard of, I think the Browns could take over this game easily. So I would strongly be leaning on the Browns in this game. Now I'll be moving on to the New York Giants, and they're going to be visiting the Chargers. This couldn't have come at a worse time for the Giants, but it doesn't really matter because their playoff hopes are pretty much going to be done after this week. The Giants are coming in as an injured batch, and they're only starting to play a heating up Chargers team. This is the perfect time for the Chargers to heat up and make a serious playoff push. Not only that, the Chargers are at home, and they have been playing fairly well against NFC East teams, so I only see them to continue this. And the Giants are so injured that their third string quarterback might play. That's Jake Fromm. Yeah, his name is Jake Fromm, like Jake from State Farm. So my clear lean on that game is on the Chargers, and I would take them by a million points. I think they're going to blow out the Giants. Now the next game I'll be moving on to is the one that I have a serious eye on, and this is the Niners at the Bengals. Now in order for my NFC Beast prediction to come alive, I'm going to need the Niners to take a serious flop and start losing some games, because they're one of the top teams up there for the 7th seed. Now, Unfortunately, on the Niners' side of the football, they have a lot of running back issues because they had a lot of injuries early on in the season. So I think the Bengals are going to try and make the Niners a one-dimensional team by making them pass happy. This means that it leaves room for Kittle to go off. Now, if Jimmy G can't have a great day, then I fully see the Bengals able to bounce back from their embarrassing loss last week against the Chargers. Not only that, but if the Bengals are able to protect Burrow, then I think they'll be able to come back. And this game has a huge amount of implications to it because the winner of this game positions themselves for a better seat in the playoffs. And it's going to be in Cincinnati, so I'm going to be leaning with the underdog Bengals in this matchup. The next game I'll be moving on to is the Dallas Cowboys who are going to be visiting the Washington football team. Now I feel like this is going to be an ugly NFC divisional game. I'm slightly leaning for the Washington football team, but in terms of my NFC beast playoff implicator, this one really doesn't matter who wins or loses. I'm just rooting for Washington football team, on the small hopes that the Eagles win out to somehow get this divisional win. But that's a real ask. The reason I think this is going to be a defensive game is because both defenses are great and they're going to be playing in Washington and the Washington football team have an awful field. And if there's any bad weather on Sunday as well, I think we're going to see a really ugly game. But I'll have a slight lean on the Washington football team just because that's who I'm rooting for. So the next game I'll be moving on to is going to be the Saints visiting the Jets. Now the Saints are going to be having Taysom Hill again at quarterback, and they've been doing really poorly without Alvin Kamara. If Alvin Kamara plays, the Saints are going to destroy no matter what. I still think the Saints are going to beat the Jets, even without Alvin Kamara, because the Jets are just torn up. And the reason I think the Saints can still win is because they can't cover the run. And, in case you don't know, Taysom Hill isn't a throwing quarterback. So Sean Payton's going to try and find a way to get the Saints to beat these Jets, because it'll keep them alive in this playoff run especially with that 7th seed still looming around. So I have a strong lean on the Saints to win by any amount they need to. The next game I'll be moving on to is going to be the Seahawks who are visiting the Texans. The Texans, who should be getting the first round pick in the NFL draft. Because I think the Lions are going to try and build a winning culture by the end of the season and win some games that they shouldn't. This is going to be Seattle's week to prove if they want to make a playoff push. And they're going to be able to play the Texans. So Russ is finally coming off his first good game after his finger injury, which means he's fully healed. 
And I think what we're going to see here is Seattle just lay a plumbing on the Texans. So I'm definitely leaning on Seattle, using this as a get-well game to start their playoff push. Even though right now it looks ugly, the 7th seed is open for almost anyone. Then the next game that has these NFC Beast implicators is the Falcons at the Panthers. Now I'll have my bias and I'll be rooting for the Panthers because I want the Falcons to lose so that they don't fight for that 7th seed later on. And with the Panthers not having a real quarterback, I wouldn't view them as a threat anyways. But without that bias in place, I think Matt Ryan and his experience is going to find a way to pull through because the winner of this game is going to be able to continue and fight for that 7th seed in the playoff while the loser is most likely going to have to walk away. So I think the Falcons are going to find a way to pull off a win even though I'll be rooting for the Panthers. The next game I want to talk about is going to be the Raiders who are going to be visiting the Chiefs. And they couldn't have caught the Chiefs at any better time. I feel really bad because the Raiders for the past month have been falling off a cliff and the Chiefs have finally found their spark over the last two weeks. So because of this, I think the Chiefs are going to roll right over the Raiders, but I think the Raiders are still going to put up a valiant effort and they're going to make a high scoring game. Regardless, I see the Chiefs winning by at least double digits. And now the next game I'll talk about is going to be the Jacksonville Jaguars that are going to be visiting the Tennessee Titans. This is the Urban Meyer coach Jags we're talking about and the awful morale they must have as a whole franchise. And they're visiting the Titans. Even with how depleted the Titans are on their roster, they're coming off their bye. So I think this gives them a huge advantage because they're all rested up. Not only that, they're playing the Jacksonville Jaguars, who are coached by Urban Meyer and he clearly doesn't have his locker room. So I think the Jags are going to come out here and lay another stinker and the Titans are still pushing for a number one seed. So they're going to come out strong, especially after their bye week. And then this next game I'll be talking about is going to be the one where the Lions are going to try and get their second win of the season. That's right, can they make it a two-game winning streak? I don't think so. But they're going to be playing the Broncos in Denver. And I think that because the Lions are coming off a thrilling win, they're actually coming off of a high. And because they're coming off this high, I think they're going to lay a stinker, especially in Denver with the high altitude. Not only that, but technically the Broncos still have something to fight for. Because if they win this week, they're still in the hunt for the playoff push. Even though this is going to be a bad QB game between Teddy Bridgewater and Jared Goff, I think we're going to see the Denver Broncos and that defense in the high altitude come out on top over the one win and one tie Lions. And now that I've got three games left, these are probably going to be the three best games of the week, honestly. Well... Well, one of them might only be considered the best game because of Sunday Night Football, but I still think Packers-Bears has potential to be a good game. The first one I'll talk about is still going to be happening in Sunday afternoon, and that's going to be the Bills who are going to be visiting the Bucks. Now, the Bills just got embarrassed on Monday Night Football by the Patriots. Even though it was that super windy weather game, they lost by only allowing three passes, so they got ran over on. And not only that, they're going to be going in Florida, so they're going to a warmer area. I think this is a spot where we've got one team that has something more to prove. The Bucks are good and everyone in the NFL knows that. And I'm not saying the Bucks aren't going to come out on top, but I think the Bills are going to come out swinging and I think they're going to try and put on an air show. So if the Bucks don't come out to match that intensity, I think the Bills might be able to catch the Bucks early on and then they could hold off for the win. So because of the ugly weather game and literally getting the ball pounded down their throat, I think the Bills are going to be coming out frustrated against the Bucks, and they're going to find a way to come out on top, especially because it's in Miami. And this now leaves me with the last game for the Sunday slate, which is going to be Sunday night football. Unfortunately, Bears fans have to watch Aaron Rodgers try and shred their team up yet again. 
And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And here's my reason why. The Bears are still being coached by Matt Nagy. Matt Nagy is not liked by anyone in that organization except for the GM, basically. So I think on Sunday Night Football, it's going to be the perfect time for the Bears to quote-unquote try but not try. And I think it's going to embarrass Matt Nagy. Now, I don't think it's going to get him fired on the spot, but I think it'll definitely help towards those firing discussions at the end of the season. Not only that, but the Packers obviously have something to fight for, and they're going for that number one seed. So it's going to be Aaron Rodgers versus a rookie quarterback in Lambeau during a playoff run. Yeah, I think I'll take the Packers at home, especially against the Bears. So after the Thursday night football game today, and then the 12 games we have on slate for Sunday, we've got one more game on Monday night. And for Monday night football, we're going to have the Rams visiting the Cardinals. I have a feeling this game is going to be played like two people playing Madden. We might see another 40 plus point shootout. But that's just me being highly spectacle and hopeful. Because you've got the Arizona Cardinals, who right now are probably ranked number one, maybe alongside with the Patriots. And then you've got the Rams who are coming in to visit. And last time these two faced off, the Cardinals got the better end of the deal. So you've got the Rams trying to come in and give a little revenge. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. This is perfectly scripted for the Rams. They haven't been able to beat any significant games yet. I think this Monday night football game is the perfect time they show the world that they're able to beat a good team. Not just a good team, but right now, as it stands, the number one ranked team. So that's going to be our week 14 slate for the NFL. This was my first attempt at analyzing these games before making my bet picks, so I'll definitely be getting better on these takes in the future. But for now, this is the format I plan on doing things. I'll be talking about all the games I plan on betting, and then I'll be giving you the picks at the very end. I feel like it's very convenient this way, because I can at least talk about the games for a short little period of time before I give you my picks. So now what I'll be doing for this upcoming weekend picks is I'll be giving out three kinds of bets. I'll give out one 14 parlay, one 10 team pick teaser, and then one of my round robins that I always create is the NFL underdog round robin. So for my 14 pick parlay, I'll be naming it the NFC Beast Parlay because these are the teams I'm rooting for in week 14 so that we can get three NFC East teams into the playoffs. So this bet slip consists of the Pittsburgh Steelers winning tonight, the Cincinnati Bengals, the Carolina Panthers, and then the New York Jets winning on Sunday. So I already put in a $10 risk on this bet slip and it would pay out $242. But this means that I would need the Vikings, the Niners, the Falcons, and the Saints all to lose this week. If all four of those things happen, we're going to hit a plus 2400 odds bet pick. Now the other bet slip I wanted to create is a 10 team pick teaser. Now what these teasers are, is you can pick the spread on up to two games and buy points. So let's say a spread is plus two. If you wanted to buy six points, you would now make that spread plus eight instead. So you can pick two, but I like to get wonky and pick 10 games. So what I did is I bought six points on all of these teams spreads. So for this 10 team teaser, I have the Steelers at plus nine, I have the Chiefs at minus three and a half, the Titans at minus two and a half, the Browns at plus three and a half, the Falcons at plus eight and a half, the Bills at plus nine, the Packers at minus six and a half, the Bengals at plus seven and a half, the Chargers at minus four, and then finally on Monday Night Football to end it, the Rams at plus eight and a half. So if all of those teams cover their spreads and I need every single one of them to, 
I'm going to hit a plus 2500 odds bet slip. I risk $10 on this one as well, and I realize it's wonky, but when I recap this teaser, I hope you'll be able to see how I explain it more in depth then. And then because it'd be risky to just rely on these two parlays to even win me money in the gambling segment, I decided to make a round robin, just so I can stick to the roots that started this segment anyways. I'll only be making one of them though for this weekend, so this way I can analyze it on Monday, and I'll be sticking to the underdog theme. So the underdogs I've chosen for this round robin is actually going to be the Steelers, Bengals, Jets, Falcons, Washington football team, Bills, Ravens, and Rams. Now typically I told you I would put one now typically I told you I would risk a $1 amount for every parlay that's created, and since there's 28 parlays on an 8 combination slate, then that would be 28 total dollars risked. But for this round robin, I actually wound up risking $2 for every parlay. So what this means is I'm risking 56 total dollars now instead of my 28. All I've done is just double the risked amount. So by having my NFC Beast Parlay, my 10 team teaser, and my underdog round robin, I'll be risking a total of $76 on NFL picks this week. As the sports gambling segment moves on, I only look forward to progressing in my analysis on these games and get better on the picks I give out to you. For now, I'm going to start off small and progress as I go on. So until next time, my friendly degenerates, ape out. Welcome back class. Today's lesson is going to be on backtesting and what backtesting is. So backtesting is a method to see how well a strategy or a certain model would have done using certain historical data from the past. And if a backtest works, all it shows is that it's a proven model off of this historical data. So as I go on with the lesson, you'll get more familiar with what backtesting is. But in short, you're essentially just testing theories using data that the market has provided for you in the past. And this way, you can get a sense if it's worked in the past or if it hasn't performed too well. And when it comes to these backtesting models, there are certain variables that everyone must think about. For example, you need to think about the market conditions you want to set for your backtesting model, like what the interest rates are, how the inflation rate is going, what the GDP is in certain areas, what GDP area you're even in, all of these little nuanced stuff. And then after you're done determining all the little nuanced stuff you want to include in your backtesting model, you'll need to make sure that you choose a backtesting period and within this period, you've got companies that were successful, bankrupt, liquidated, struggling, growing, all kinds of companies. Because you'll want to include all kinds of companies in your backtest. You don't want to only include successful companies because then you're going to overinflate your gains. And then after you've chosen your companies and your market conditions for your backtesting model, you'll want to take an account for all of the trading costs, no matter how minimal this is. Even if you get charged 0.005 cents per share bought, you will have to account for that kind of cost in your model. Because over the long run in a scaling run, you want to see how successful you are with this. Because the reason people set up these backtests is so that you can trade algorithmically and that you don't have to do any hard work. You quite literally just have a bunch of computer programs buying and selling at certain requirements. 
And if you can create a successful backtest, you can just have a computer do all this shit for you and you can make a lot of money. But you have to make a successful backtest first. So now before I move on with the lesson, I want to quickly break down what I think a backtest is and at least explain it in simpler terms. Because right now all I've done is ambush you with certain information and if you're still lost on the very basics of a backtest, it does no use if I continue. So in a sense, what a backtest is, is when you apply all these criteria to a certain stock, sector, or thesis on the market, and you use all of this data that the stock market has provided in the past to see how it would have performed. So an example I'll give you is let's say you wanted to see what would happen if you bought the S&P 500 every single Monday and then sold on a Friday. Well, you can run a backtest on that. So let's say you decided to always buy $1,000 worth of the S&P 500 Monday morning and then you would sell Friday before the close. You can put this kind of criteria and conditions in your backtest and then you would have to choose a time period in the past. So let's say you want to see how it's performed since the year 2000. You can do this and run a model on it and then it will tell you what your gains would have been if you ran this kind of backtest. So now that I've given you an example of a backtest, I hope to have at least broken it down to some simpler language in which you understand what the function for it is. And this will help so I can move on with the lesson. Because after this hard and monotonous task of creating this huge backtest is even implemented, you're now left with more work to do. You have to do a forward performance test. Now you don't have to, but it'd be really smart to. And what a forward performance test is, is honestly just paper trading. So this is putting your strategy to use over the course of the next week, month, or however long you decide you need to see if this theory is actually a proven one. What you would do is you would test your market conditions and your backtesting model in a live market setting. Now you wouldn't actually physically buy the shares, but you would pretend to. And then you would keep a record track of this just to see how your backtesting model performs in the live market. On a day-to-day -day basis, your backtest could have significantly different results. What you want to do is record as many results so that you can see if you should even be using this backtest in the first place. Because after you do your forward performance testing for as long as you see fit, what you're going to do next is perform a bunch of scenario analysis. Remember how I said you have to pick your market conditions when you make this backtest? Well now you're going to want to make a scenario analysis for what happens in the worst case conditions. What happens if inflation starts rising? What happens if our interest rates go higher? What happens if GDP goes down? Or there's supply chain issues? That stuff isn't accounted for in our original backtest. So the way we can do this is by making a couple backtests that solve for worst case scenarios. And this way when our backtest isn't performing as well, we can at least see is it reaching past the worst case scenario or are we still in the safe zone? And there are definitely some benefits to backtesting. Because if you're able to create a model where you're able to just do these simple trading tactics and it profits you 30%, why wouldn't you do it? Because then you don't have to actually pick real stocks. You can just be good on a theory. What if you find out that buying a certain stock on a Tuesday and selling it on a Thursday gets you 30% year-over-year returns? I mean, hell, I'm not the one to tell you that's a bad idea. Backtest it and try it out. But there are some downsides to backtesting, and I want to let you know what they are. Because one of the biggest downsides to backtesting is that it's hard to avoid your biases. 
especially your biases, on creating the test itself and selecting the data points for the test. One clear example of bias is if I made a back test to measure only from the year 2000. Because for me that's a prevalent range, it takes into account for almost all of the years I've been alive. But another back test that might not be as biased is one that starts when the gold standard ended, around 1971. Because as opposed to my back test model, which only accounts for about 2 or 3 crashes, this back test model not only accounts for about 5 or 6 crashes, but it also covers multiple political reigns, a lot of societal conflict, huge ups and downs in the American economy, which will only help solidify a back test because there's more data points out there. And it's not as biased, because from the year 2000 to now, there's obviously been a lot of gain. And even though there's been more gain from the year 1971, at least in the backtest model, it can account for many other factors, it can account for many other factors that didn't occur from the year 2000 to now. So one major flaw on these backtests is the biases on how we select our data points. Because what if you select the market period during only bull runs? Well then you better be in a bull run market period, or else your backtest is flawed. And then another con to backtesting is something called data dredging. Now what data dredging is, is when you test a wide range of hypothetical strategies. One example I'll give you is let's say that you decided to make a conditional format that you only want to search for stocks that are over $10, have a 50-day moving average that falls below the 200-day moving average, the intraday trading volume is lower than their average volume, and that they are currently trading at a loss intraday, this would be an example of a wide range of hypothetical strategies. Because what you're asking yourself to do then, is pick a stock based off of these four hypotheticals. And in any given moment in a market time, these can change just like that. So that can be something that can be considered data dredging. Because essentially what you're looking for, is a stock that's over $10, and it's just sharply declining right now. Well you gotta find a better way to put that information in, Otherwise, your backtest might give you something you're not really even looking for. And it's hard to tell what's the difference between a data dredge and actual relevant information. Because what if the example I just gave you is actually a perfect backtesting model? Now if you didn't understand the example I gave you, or you didn't understand exactly what I said, don't worry, because that has nothing to do with the actual lesson. That was just a lot of jargon I was saying to show you an example of what data dredging might look like. But one way to test if this was truly data dredging is to use your results from your forward testing performance and backtest those. If you backtest your forward performance data points, then you'll be able to see if the inputs you put into your conditions are data dredging or if it's actually a really good backtesting model. Now I know that must sound really complicated and confusing, and trust me, backtesting is still something that I'm new to and I actually haven't done yet. But all that really means is just double checking yourself. It's almost like you created your backtesting model, you ran your backtesting model with these forward tests, you then took your results off of your forward tests and ran a backtest on those. So what you're doing is you're double checking your work. It's almost like in school where you're doing everything by hand and then you get to use the calculator at the end. If your answer is right on the calculator, then you couldn't possibly have messed up. And those are two of the primary cons that come to backtesting. Now aside from some cons to the backtesting modeling, there's also some limitations to it. And if you want to view these limitations as cons as well, be my guest, but I view these limitations as something else. 
They're just mountains that haven't been carved yet. And one limitation that probably won't ever get carved yet is that you're using historical data. So you're relying on something that happened in the past to predict the future, which can be proven to be rather unstable, especially if certain conditions have never happened before. But then one of the limitations that stands right now that I think could get solved in the future at some point with some really smart brain power is the inability for these backtesting models and strategies to change the prices in the past if certain conditions changed. So let me explain what I mean. Let's say you decide to pick a certain stock and backtest it. And then let's say for that same stock, you decided to choose what the price was a year ago. And let me just say that the price is $200 for this said stock. And you find out that the trading volume on that day was 2 million. Now what you can't do with these back tests is you can't run a what if calculator. You can't say, what if on this trading day, instead of the volume being 2 million, it was 20 million. What would the price be then? Well, you can't change the price in this historical backtesting model. So that's one of the limitations to this backtesting. You can't run what-if scenarios if conditions had changed in the past. And now I feel like the perfect way to end the lesson is with the reason I even decided to talk about backtesting for this episode in the first place. I was scrolling through Reddit, and I found a beautiful Reddit ape who decided to show off his backtesting models and some of them he's created. His handle for Reddit is u slash delicious underscore reporter 21. And that's delicious with a capital D and reporter with a capital R. 21 as in the number 21. So the original post I found that this Redditor backtested was Jim Cramer's show Mad Money. He backtested what would have happened if viewers had bought the stock recommendations Jim Cramer made the day after the show and then held on for only one day and held on for five days. So what this means is, let's say today on Mad Money, Jim Cramer says, you should buy Tesla. What he would do is, he would buy $1,000 worth of Tesla the next day, because the markets close when Jimmy makes his recommendations sometimes, and then he would only hold that share for one full day. He would then sell the share. He ran this backtesting model. He also ran the same backtesting model with what would happen if you held the share for five days instead of just one. Well, what he found out is if you held the shares for five days, your year-to-year -year returns since the inception of the show, which is about 2007 or 8, I believe, you would have had an average yearly return of 28%. Not too bad for a public show, but that's only if you did this backtesting model. So that means if you blindly follow Jim Cramer's Mad Money show and bought $1,000 worth of his stock recommendations the next day after, held on for five days, and hit sell, for absolutely no reason other than just because you trust your back test, over the years, you would be up 28% year over year. And the back test I want to talk about that he created, which I think is even more impressive than the Jim Cramer one, is the one he calls winners keep winning. Now the criteria he chose for this back test is that the stock has to belong in the NASDAQ 100, the stock has to have been up 3% or more in the prior days, and when he creates the code on this, he can choose what these prior days are. So he can say up to four days, five days, a week prior, he gets to choose. And then the final condition he placed was that the stock had to be up at least 10 minutes into the morning. So those were the three criteria that Delicious Reporter 21 decided to place on his backtest. So what his plan for trading this backtesting model is, 
is that at 9.40 Eastern Time, which is 10 minutes after the market opens, he would only buy one stock. Now you can apply any notational value you want to this, but he said for his backtesting model, he picked the investing amount as $10,000. For you, if you want to make it 100, be my guest, you can invest any amount. But for backtesting purposes, it's smart to keep the amount the same, or relatively the same, each time. So what Delicious Reporter 21's backtest had is 10 minutes after the market was open, he would buy one stock. And if there were multiple stocks that fit into the categories, he would choose the one with the highest relative volume compared to the average volume so far. So let's say you had 5 stocks and all of their average volume was 10. Well, he would pick the one that had the intraday volume trading at the highest percentage rate compared to that average volume. And what's great is he wouldn't even keep this stock for a whole day. He would buy it 10 minutes into the market open and then sell it at the end of the day. Or if the stock decided to fall throughout the day, he would put a stop loss sell at half a percent lost. So this means that if you bought a stock at $100 and it lost half a percent, the stock would be sold for you. But if you didn't lose half a percent, he would just hold the stock until the end of the day and then sell it. So what did this backtest result? Well, he did choose a biased backtest I will say because he only did it for the year 2021. But regardless, if you decided for some reason at the very beginning of this year to invest a thousand, a hundred, 10,000, whatever, a fixed amount of money every single time into this theory. If every single market day you woke up and you looked at the NASDAQ 100's list of stocks and you bought the number one 10 minutes into the market and sold at the end of the day, or if it fell at half a percent from your fill price, you would be up a total gain amount of 75.29% so far this year. That means you would have made 75% of your investment by just running this dumb model of buying one stock in the beginning of the day and selling it by the end of the day and re-rolling your profits into the next day. Or if you had a loss, you would just put a slightly lower amount in the next day compared to your initial amount. And what's even crazier with this backtesting model is sure, it's nice to be up a total of 75%, but what's the worst case scenario his test would have done throughout the year if you actually followed this model? Well, the worst you would have ever been in would have been minus 5.3%. So that means the worst position your portfolio ever would have been in this whole year, had you been running this backtesting model, would be at minus 5%. Well, compared to inflation, that's nothing, because inflation's clearly over 6%. So this backtesting model is already a better bet, at least in the past, okay? Not the future, is already better than inflation. And because I was lucky enough to stumble upon this guy and his backtesting methods on Reddit, I decided to do what everyone should on Reddit. You just ask a question and hope they answer back. I sent him a message asking him where he got his backtesting method and what kind of website he used. Because I've always been curious in backtesting, but I figured you'd probably have to pay a lot of money to own this kind of application. Well, I was wrong. Because he told me that he used something called Breaking Equity, which is a website that allows retail traders to create their own backtests and run their own algorithms. So this means that he was able to create these backtests for free on BreakingEquity.com or Breaking Equity's website. Now I'm not here promoting Breaking Equity at all. What I'm saying is, if you want to make a backtest as a retail trader, you have an option to do so for free. Which is something cool because I highly doubt this was an option 5 or 10 years ago. 
I bet you these softwares cost thousands of dollars just for a monthly subscription. And now you can get it for free. And my plan is to definitely experiment with these back tests. I'm going to be using this Breaking Equity website over the weekend to create some fun and random back tests. I'll let you know some of the results I get on Monday, and if I learned anything new by actually using the website. For now, I'm just hoping to at least have shown you how a lot of modeling can be applied to the markets, especially the last couple weeks, because I've not only shown you how there's a time value of money and how certain projects can be accounted for by using this concept, I've also now shown you how you can use historical stock data and company performances to model out your stock plans. So now you see there's endless opportunities in this stock market game. You can be someone that's a short picker, you can be a speculator, you can be someone that picks stocks on a long-term basis, or you can be what some might call crazy. Pick a theory out there that might be so wild it just works. Imagine backtesting what would happen if you bought weed companies at the beginning of the market and then sold them at 4.20 Eastern Time. I wonder what the results would be then. Would it be profitable or not? But what if a strategy that stupid actually outperformed the S&P 500? Would it be called stupid? No, it'd be called smart. So class, I hope you learned something about backtesting today. And if it was a complicated subject not explained as well, well, as I explore the website for backtesting, I hope I'll be able to break it down easier for you in future episodes if you found it confusing. But for those of you that learned something today, I feel like I've done my job. And if you managed to make it this late into the episode, I just want to say thank you, love you, and until next time, ape out. Every backtest has its backstory.